Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. I'm back with a new episode, and I am so stoked about our guest for our next episode. Her name is Anubat. She is an actor, dancer, and playwright. She was originally from San Diego and had spent the past several years in Chicago pursuing theater. This past summer, she recently moved back to sunny San Diego while the rest of us in the Midwest are preparing for the dream of winter. This past year, Anu recently debuted her one-woman show, Hollow Wave, and is now in the process of taking this amazing show to different cities. I don't want to give the show away, but let's just say that I'm a fan of Hollow Wave and that you all should see it. It is such a beautiful, moving, honest, and inspirational show. I was fortunate enough to talk with Anu about the process of creating this show, and also about the challenges of navigating her South Asian identity in the theater performance spaces. I am thankful to Anu for sharing her experiences, and hope that you have the opportunity to follow her journey. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Anu. Thank you, everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Randy Kim from the Bunmi Chronicles. So today I am here with my good friend, Anu Bhatt. Anu, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, so we miss you from Chicago. I know you had to leave us several months ago and I'm heartbroken by it, <laughs> but I'm also very happy and at the same time, very jealous of you because you're in San Diego, California. You're in nice weather while we're starting to feel the effects of fall coming in. Yeah, I am. I, I miss Chicago too, and I miss everybody in Chicago, but I won't lie and say I miss the winter. Have oh. to be honest about that. Yeah, so what actually uh, brought you to San Diego? Well, I grew up in San Diego, and I spent, I mean, I, I went to college up in the Bay Area, and then I came back down here for a couple years, and then I moved out to Chicago in 2010 for my MFA at Roosevelt. So I came back after just under nine years. It was like just shy of my nine-year anniversary. And I came back um, because I wanted to kind of find my home again. Um, it's interesting how... Uh, it's been a while since I've been back in California and I, you know, was thrilled with living in Chicago and I loved Chicago, but there came a time when my heart wanted to kind of find out, you know, where it belonged and I felt a pull to come back home. So I followed that and now I'm here trying to kind of find my roots and see where things go. That's wonderful. So before you left uh, Chicago, you created this uh, play, Hollow Wave, and I believe it took about a year in the making. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, I, uh, I can elaborate a little bit on that. I, I had a, a, a different one-woman show, uh, a shorter ver uh, not a shorter version of Hollow Wave, but a different show altogether that I wrote in 2015. 
And then I had um, collaborated or rather been in communication with Silk Road Rising about creating a full length play. And they were wonderful and asked me to essentially expand the play that I had. In doing that, basically I started in, I would say, the summer to the fall of 2017, and it got produced in 2018 um, at Silk Road Rising in May of 2018. But in doing, in doing the expansion, essentially, I found out that I was writing a totally different play. So it became a totally different play, and that's, why, that's how Hollow Wave was, quote-unquote, born. Yeah, and I was actually uh, very honored to see uh, Hollow Wave, although it was the abbreviated version of it. Uh, I remember. version. Let's yes. call it the touring version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was incredibly moved by it. And I was wondering if you can uh, shed some light about what Hollow Wave is about and how did it, the play, well, you kind of shared that already, but how, uh, what was the inspiration in creating that play? And uh, take us through that if you can. Of course. Hollow Wave is, a, is an autobiographical one-woman show. So it's about my life, my childhood. And it's about joy and trauma living side by side. It's about finding your voice and becoming a survivor rather than a victim. In more detail, Hollow Wave talks about sexual abuse, specifically pedophilia, which is what I experienced multiple times as a child and into my teenage years. And it also talks about depression and the, the links in my personal life between the trauma I experienced and the depressive symptoms that I then experienced into, th from my teenage years into adulthood. So it chronicles the journey that I went through, not only experiencing the events, but rather becoming a person who reflected back on these events and found out that they had long-term effects. So what I think is really important about Hollow Wave and about a lot of shows being written by people of color, women of color, Asian Americans these days, is talking about the fact that trauma is not a one-time event. The, in, the incident, in certain cases, the incident might be a one-time event, but the effects are long-lasting and in that way, we relive those moments over and over again. Um, mm. So in that way, I think it's very important. Um, yes. Yeah. And one, one thing I wanted to add, actually, that, that was related to how I was uh, talking about Silk Road, is that my previous show, which is, um, can I say profanity? Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it's called, it's uh, the, pre the first show I wrote, my first one-woman show, is called Where Is My Goddamn Coconut? <laughs> and uh, it's, it's quite a longer word. title. <laughs> Where's my goddamn coconut colon and other musings of a small brown woman. <laughs> and that show was a kind of surface look at my experience with depression. But when I started writing Hollow Wave, it was the first time I was addressing the causes that I found to be legitimate causes between trauma and depression. Basically, it was the first time I was addressing, uh, excuse me, addressing trauma on stage, my story and my experiences in a public way. Um, so it caused me to have to go deeper into the reason behind my depression and my experience with depression and really delve into what was actually going on. So it was a, it was a, a journey. <laughs> 
to say the least. It was an oh. adventure. And looking back, and when you were creating this play, what was the process like in revisiting these key moments, particularly when it involved trauma? It was really challenging, I won't lie. It was, it was I would say, uh, what kept me moving forward was the, the sense of community that I, could, that I could feel out there, knowing that other people have gone through this and knowing, not knowing specifically, but knowing kind of estimating or kind of guesstimating that there would be people in the audience um, who would who's who would resonate with my story or, or with whom my story would re would resonate um, so in that way it kept me moving forward but I won't lie the writing of it um, the f basically all of fall of 2017 I was writing this show through uh, Silk Road's workshops that they provided for me but also more so with Arlie Malinowski's um, private solo performance group and shout out to Arlie Malinowski um, she's amazing. Um, it was really challenging because it brought up this, these traumatic events again, and it, it challenged me to be writing about these things in almost an objective way because I was trying to craft it from a narrative perspective as a playwright. However, these events have never been, I had never spoken of these events on stage before. So it wasn't like I was, you know, really objective. I was, I was, um, being challenged to be the vulnerable storyteller on stage and the objective playwright at the same time, and all of this for the first time. So I really stretched myself. And, um, you know, I know that there are other storytellers out there like me who are telling these brave stories, and I honestly don't know the consequences of this. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, it's mostly healing. I would say it's 75% healing, but it's 25% really triggering for me because I, I have to do this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's what, hard. What ways, uh, when you get do these triggers, how do you, in ways, de-escalate yourself uh, when you're revisiting these moments? And also when you're performing, and um, are there people that you end up talking to afterwards during the after the show um do you end up having time to yourself like when you start to write and then you're reliving a certain episode in your life do you find yourself having to exit out of the process for a little while i was just very curious to know how do you manage to continue especially when you go through these moments that are not uh they're quite unsettling yeah, I I have my own decompression routine when I come home from performing. I also make sure to take at least five minutes for myself after performing, immediately after performing, before I go and speak to the audience. And uh, yeah, I meditate. <laughs> I meditate. I journal. I do a lot of self-care. I take Epsom salt baths. <laughs> um, I haven't done that yet. Those are really, really good. I would recommend I need to. those. <laughs> I need to try that. They're literally leaching out the toxins from your body. So I, I feel like they're really helpful. Um, but that's my personal decompression routine. I won't say it's perfect, but, I, but it does help me. Um, but I will, will also say that uh, uh, organized, moderated talkbacks have helped me because they give a structure to the, and a safety net for me mm -hmm. as the performer to listen to people's feedback. 
but it also gives other people a chance to share their feedback. And I know that this is a show that makes people need to talk after. Um, but yeah, I, um, I'm still trying to navigate that. You know, it's been, it's been a year since I essentially debuted this show at Silk Road Rising, a year and a half, mm. pretty much. And I've had several more chances to perform it, which is awesome. But I'm still figuring out that, that distancing routine. What I do know is that the more I do it, the more I can tell the story. And what keeps me going is the feedback I've received after every single show, which is some of the most amazing uh, experiences shared by other people, whether it's a student coming up to me and telling me that she's never seen herself represented on stage because a South Asian woman of, you know, a South Asian body, a South Asian female body talking about these things as she's never seen that. Or the thing that, that I mention a lot, which is one of the first <laughs> pieces of feedback I got at Silk Road Rising, and it has stuck with me, um, is a woman telling me that she didn't realize she went through the same abuse until she saw my show. Mm. And this person was significantly older than me which breaks my heart because it, it uplifts me and breaks my heart at the same time it uplifts me because that means this show is really affecting people in a in a positive way it's representing people who don't necessarily have a voice but what breaks my heart is that the recognition of trauma the experience after that is a whole journey of pain in itself right pain and healing and vulnerability and sometimes people who have never had the tools to deal with it in the first place or never been educated or never given the space to talk about it, they may not then have the tools to heal once they are forced to reckon with that evidence that they have experienced the same trauma. So, you know, I know the therapy that I went through for so long, not just recognizing these events, but simply my own experiences with depression. So I feel for her. I really do. And I wish for mm. courage and joy. I'm just like really moved by it because I know that I was there for the talk back and I remembered uh, watching these plays. You don't just up and leave uh, as audience members. You want to sit and process it, but to have an opportunity to talk about it and hear other people's stories, I found to be so uh, spiritually nourishing and also very validating to hear these uh, other stories and how it connects to your stories. And I find it to be so powerful. I know when I had sat through uh, one of Ada's shows, she always says that it's something about what the audience energy comes back to me that I that takes so much, uh, that brings so much pleasure into um, performing these shows and hearing these people hearing other people's stories are very uh, important. So I'm glad that you have brought that out to other communities. And one of the uh, things that we were talking about is the South Asian community. You mentioned that you wanted to bring uh, your show to the South Asian community spaces. Uh, and I was wondering what that experience was like uh, communicating with uh, community members and mm -hmm. attending your show. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it any, you know, anywhere and everywhere in the country at the moment, which means that there's a whole spectrum of South Asian communities that I will be sort of contacting. 
the experience I've had so far has been overwhelmingly positive, which, which to be honest was a relief because performing this is important to me to, to create a dialogue within the South Asian community, but because the South Asian community is known for not talking about these issues, makes me feel really vulnerable to bring it up and um, a little anxious that, you know, maybe I'll get someone saying that's not valid or you don't have a right to bring. That hasn't happened. So I'm projecting. Um, that's my own anxiety speaking. But I won't, I won't deny that th those thoughts and those concerns come from a legitimate place because my experience as a South Asian American I have seen the lack of dialogue about mental health and the lack of dialogue about sexual abuse. And so, yeah, those concerns are valid. Um, but yeah, I, um, I'm looking forward to more experiences with the South Asian community. I, I haven't necessarily, ex um, I haven't necessarily interacted with enough South Asian communities right now, since it's a little new, um, to the point where I can say this has been my experience with the South Asian community. But again, my sort of individual experiences with South Asian communities, um, whether it's been in California or Chicago, and I'm about to take it to New York, um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. So I, I'm encouraged again to sort of say, okay, <laughs> anxiety or no, let me just keep going and, and try again and try to reach some more people. Yeah, and also being an independent artist, uh, I know you've been talking about bringing this play to other uh, cities. So how has the experience like trying to promote your show and to do all this marketing, which I'm sure is another beast that you're contending with at the moment. So I'm just very curious to know what your experience has been like trying to knock on people's doors and say, hey, I got a show that I want you to see. And I know it's very important. It's near and dear to my heart. So. Yeah, tell us about that experience if you can. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. I will say, you know, it's positive in the long run because it's teaching me how to believe in my story, believe in the power of my storytelling, which is obviously a good thing. It's, it's teaching me to advocate for myself, which I think is amazing. It is also really challenging because I didn't know a lot of these things starting out, you know, as an actor primarily an actor under other people's productions, you know, as a theater actor or an on-camera actor, I'm not responsible for the marketing or the production or anything like that. I'm only responsible for my performance. So as a solo performer, um, you know, with a production house like Silkwood Rising, that was the same deal. I, I had one more hat, which was playwright, but I didn't have these other hats. Now as an independent artist with Silk Road's blessing to sort of take this and, and tour it, I have found out that it is really, really tough. Oh my gosh, like how every hat is a full-time job, whether it's producing, marketing, performing, revising the script, rehearsing the show. Um, yeah, it's been challenging. What's also challenging is that, you know, it's hard to get a hold of people sometimes. It's a long game. Um, it's not a quick solution. I, I, I have to... Um, I have to make sure that my priority is creating relationships with people, but which, which is important to me. But when I have a deadline coming up, like a show, and I would really love to have an audience there, then it's, it's difficult to not kind of want to bang down the door and say, come see the show. I know it's going to change your life, but just come. 
so it's, it's been it's been a challenge but again you know lots of learning <laughs> steep learning curve for me but lots of positives um it, it's probably going to get better from here on out yeah i can't wait to see where this show is going to go into and what city it's playing at and seeing what the growth is going to look like in the end uh because i know that you've already shown so much growth from the time that you started this play to bringing it to new york which is really exciting and are you looking forward to new york i am looking forward to new york i am i look forward to performing the show wherever i do it yeah i'm looking forward to new york not so much because it's new york versus any other place but because it's another opportunity to share my story with people i i will have a varied audience coming in to see the show which makes me kind of excited because that means that there are different perspectives watching my show and different opportunities to connect with people so yeah i was i was you know pretty exhausted from the marketing and the promotion and i was pretty you know demoralized for a while about people not getting back to me but you know what again it's you live and you learn and you get back up and then you know somebody does respond and somebody does say okay i'll get you i'll print an article about you or i'll you know <laughs> have you on my podcast and amazing things like that and and then you feel like oh okay there are people who believe in me awesome and you keep going yeah i'm definitely yeah. one of those folks too <laughs> yeah thanks Randy. Yeah. <laughs> so going way back in the time machine so what led you to go into theater and what were the barriers that you were facing in college as a South Asian person? And what kept you going in that direction despite the barriers you were dealt with? Good question. Well, I have been on stage since I was about five because I started doing Indian classical dance um, with my sister. So in terms of performing on stage, that was old hat to me. But in terms of theater, I started doing that in middle school with like, I, I had a, I think I had like an eighth grade theater class and I played Alice in Wonderland and that was my first big role. And I was like super excited about it. Um, and I kept doing that kind of, whether it was, it, I basically kept doing school theater from middle school to high school. And in college at UC Berkeley, I did student groups and we did like things like, um, foul-mouthed comedy which was you know a lot of swear words but it was for charity it was theater for charity shout out to theater for charity at uc berkeley and um i also acted with bear stage productions which was another one um on campus and we did like things like the house of bernarda alba uh not going to talk about the inappropriateness of me playing bernarda alba but you know it was 2005 2006 we hadn't had the push for <laughs> inclusion and diversity at the time um, but yeah, I wasn't necessarily serious about theater, even though when I was a kid, I loved telling stories and I would make believe all the time at home. It wasn't until I came back from, like I didn't study acting at Berkeley. Um, I took one theater class, but unfortunately, I all of the theater classes, the theater major and minor um, credits conflicted with my linguistics major. So I couldn't actually take theater as a subject. So it wasn't until I came back and th started thinking about a master's. So, I mean, if you really look back on it as a South Asian, that's how delayed it was for me. I mean, there are other kids who don't even do a BFA and just get right into acting. But for me, it was like, 
I was 23. I started applying for master's programs and I started to think, well, well, you know, what's, what if I started doing acting? Because it was one of those where I'm like, well, if I'm going to get something as a second degree and I wanted to get a second degree, let me, let me try acting. And, um, and again, you know, thinking back, it's like, cool. It had the structure of a program. So that was, you know, that's approved. Right. And I talked to my parents and my parents had been concerned because, you know, me, um, when I, when I got into the MFA program at, at CCPA at Roosevelt, I, you know, my parents were a little concerned that I'm out in Chicago. I'm away from San Diego. What's going to happen? What is this program like? But again, because it had a structure and because it had a showcase at the end where agents would come and that would be more of a chance for me to get an agent, there was a sense of a trajectory, right? There was a sense of purpose. And therefore, my parents were a little uh, mollified because I had a structure to go on. I think the irony of that, and again, I feel so delayed in certain ways as a South Asian person. The irony of that is that the structure of the MFA program really didn't have that much to do with the success of acting because acting doesn't have a trajectory like an academic program. You, I did get an agent and that helped me immensely and I'm not denying that privilege and that fortune, possibly tokenization as well, but, um, but in retrospect, it's like the, it's only the years you put into acting that get you something out of it. It's not about having a degree or not. There are people who have BFAs who are, at least I have felt, you know, way more experienced in terms of their actual theater credits and the places they've worked, the people they've worked with, or their on-camera credits. Um, so in that way, like my parents weren't, uh, discouraging, but they wanted me to have a structure. They wanted me to have some uh, safety net. And over the years, as they have seen that I can, you know, book things and be in plays and do commercials and that sort of thing, they have become even more supportive. So in that way, they are wonderful, uh, awesome people who have really changed their view of what acting is and what success means with acting. But it was a learning curve for all of us. I had to learn that success doesn't mean the straight A's that I was used to getting as a South Asian student who, where, you know, B was not okay. <laughs> like straight A's <laughs> was the way to go. So I really didn't have an option. Um, it wasn't the written proof that I could give in any other subject where I'm like, look, I have the evidence on paper that I'm smart and that I'm talented. Acting doesn't have any of that, right? You don't get to prove by paper that you're smart. You could be as talented in an audition as the next person, but because 8,000 factors are, you know, leaning the other way, you don't get that gig. And that gets multiplied by, you know, 100,000, however many auditions you end up doing as a working actor. So was that an answer to your question? I know it yeah, kind of went very, a little circuitously. I think it really does. I think it really does. And it also kind of takes us into that whole process because I've never gone into acting. So I know that the, the past few years, we're starting to see this emergence of Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander uh, representation in film, mass media, and what have you. So reflecting back on that period of time, to where you're seeing now, what do you think has been the biggest improvement that you've noticed that back when you were in college, um, say like in your uh, program that you were in, 
what can you say have been the biggest change or the biggest involvement that you have seen? And where do you see the current struggles are uh, currently in uh, your field of work? Yeah, I think we've improved a lot, uh, basically in the push for diversity and inclusion that we had several years ago in Chicago and across the country. We've improved in the sense of the awareness that <laughs> that there are different kinds of brown people and that matters, <laughs> strangely enough, yes. right? Um, the specificity and the push for specificity I find is a good thing because that means that people in casting are looking for the people whose cultural backgrounds would most accurately help them play the role. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to go as far as ScarJo and say that, you know, I can play any role. That's, that's not true. I, I don't agree with that at all. I think there is a balance in the sense that, you know, um, we might get too specific if we have if we want to follow every single detail like you have to be indian you can't be pakistani for example i don't necessarily agree with that amount of specificity but i do agree with that you know if it's a south asian role it needs to be south asian if it's a korean role look for a korean actor if it's a filipino role look for a filipino actor or a filipino actor there's a damn um, there's a damn good population of that <laughs> yeah exactly from each, from each country. the Tap in the population, tap into the population you have, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the challenges we, so, so in that way, I think there's been a lot of improvement. You know, Crazy Rich Asians was awesome because it was, was it the highest grossing film of that year? Is that correct? I believe, I'm not sure where the ranking is, but I know for a rom-com, it has to be at least in the number one ranking, I believe. Um, but it's certainly one, of, it is certainly, uh, I believe now the number one ranking Asian American film uh, of all time at the moment. Yeah, that's amazing. And that proved that people of all looks and backgrounds were going to see a movie that had an all Asian cast, not because they were all Asian, but because they were people with interesting stories. And that's what we need to keep seeing more of because Asians are people. I mean, come on, it's so simple, right? We have Absolutely. stories to tell as humans, not as Asian humans. It doesn't have to be qualified that way. Exactly. But I think the limit, I think we are still seeing limitations. I think that female roles of color or female Asian roles are still more limited than male roles. I don't have the statistics to prove that. That is my personal experience as a working actor in Chicago. I still see tokenization in the sense of South Asians having to fight for accurate name pronunciation, things mm. that are, you know, honestly seemingly simple and yet a daily challenge for me. Um, I think that in on-camera acting, and again, I, I don't have as much experience in on-camera acting, but my perception is that although there are many more, and I'll just speak from my experience, South Asian uh, actors and roles available, because of the specificity that might limit in terms of, you know, okay, we're looking at uh, North Indian versus South Indian or that kind of thing. And I don't think there's, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think that might contribute to not every South Asian actor playing every South Asian role. So in that way, maybe we do face a, a limitation that way. But, but I, think, I think it's more progress than not. 
Yeah, and I remember when you spoke at our Talk Stories event that Ada Chung and I uh, co-produced uh, back at the Seven Wolf in April. That was so you, fun. <laughs> yeah, it was so much fun, and I really enjoyed your story. And it goes into what you are, have just talked about uh, a moment ago. And there's this metaphoric, uh, this concept of the handful of sand. And I was wondering if you can explain that, because it goes into what you were just alluding to. But um, I was wondering if you would like to give that interpretation. Yes, absolutely. Um, so to give some context, the story that I wrote for this um, amazing storytelling event that was at 1700 Steppenwolf was called, I named it a handful of sand because that was my, that's my perception of the scarcity mindset um, as a South Asian working female actor. Working actor, you know, whatever. Sometimes I have to qualify female actor. That kind of irritates me. Let's just yeah. say working actor. <laughs> but what I, but the handful of sand, basically what I said in my story is that, you know, I, I look at myself and I see that I've gotten a fair number of roles and there are some people who have more experience than me. And so it kind of, it's like, I'm in the middle of a line and I look to my right and um, they're, they're, actually I'll look to my left and there are people further and further down the line and we all have handfuls of sand, but people have steadily less and less sand. Um, and someone's doling out sand. Right. And then I look to my right. So I'm, so I'm like, okay, I'm in the middle of the line or I'm close to the head of the line as a South Asian person, my experience is, you know, pretty cool. I've had a lot of luck. Um, however, I look to my right and there's this white guy who's got like two handfuls of sand and the and it happens to be the white guy who's another white guy who's doling out sand and he just keeps being like oh yeah you you get more and you get more and this person doesn't even have enough hands to hold the sand but he just keeps giving him sand and i'm like wait why don't we get some sand and i'm looking down and one person's got one grain of sand at the very end like trying to find an agent trying to get their first commercial trying to get their first play and i'm like hey hey we can distribute the wealth here come on what i'm saying is that um i have seen in Chicago, I have seen in theater across the country that there are people who have the, let's say the same amount of education in theater as I do, but have way more experience. And that's not to say they're, that's not to say they were, uh, that they cheated the system. I'm not saying that, but that they were given more opportunities based on the amount of roles available to people. The amount of roles available to people happen to be more for white males. So I have seen white males and males of color, to be honest, getting more roles than women of color. And they are consistently employed and brought into the rooms that I have tried to audition for and haven't even been able to get into. And then when I've worked with them, I mean, I mean, they're fine. Like, we're fine. Like, we're all the same. You know, I'm like, <clears throat> what got you in versus me? Like, what's, what is the difference between us? And it's, it's not talent, it's, it's opportunity. And talent and opportunity are different. And it's taken me a really long time to learn that. And the downside of that, which is um, why I wrote about the fact that I get tired of being grateful for that handful of sand that I'm given, the downside of that is that women of color are often taught to be grateful for what you have but the, what you have doesn't seem to grow in comparison to males. And 
the reason I'm not grateful is that, I, is that the downside is that we start fighting amongst each other. We start thinking, well, why did, and I'm saying this from personal experience. I'm like, well, why did she get that role? And why didn't I get that role? Um, mm-hmm. That's not fair. I should have gotten that role, but that doesn't help anything because the reality is the problem is not amongst the actors who are auditioning for the same role. The problem is in the problem is behind the table. The problem is the fact that we don't have enough roles being written. We don't have enough women writers of color writing these roles or even be getting into the room to write the roles that we get to play. So that is the scarcity mindset that I've had to fight um, and kind of iron out of myself and I'm still working on it. But it it happens a lot within the South Asian community. I don't see the South Asian community as united as other communities because we have grown up to be the best we can be that's mm. kind of sounds like the army slogan yes. be all you can be be the best you can be yeah um, you're i think you hit it on the mark there right yeah because <laughs> yeah. i know that when you talk about the lack of representation and the tokenizing of poc actors especially within your own community it's so detrimental to find community among south around the south asian community of actors right and so I always wonder like how do you and other folks try to uh, disrupt that normative that's been uh, currently going on and what do you do especially now that you are uh, bringing hollow wave to other cities how do you see yourself as you get older being a role model or as a person uh, to guide younger or mentor younger folks who are interested in going to theater? Well, it's funny. As you get older, I'm like, it's true. I'm irrevocably in my 30s. <laughs> I, welcome to that wonderful decade. <laughs> welcome to 30. This is 30. This is Sparta. This is 30. Um, past 30. Um, the the one thing I find myself coming back to over and over is creating your own work. And I'm not saying that just for myself. I'm saying that other South Asian women predominantly in Chicago, shout out to, you know, so many people I know who are creating their own work. They are creating these opportunities for themselves and for other people to tell stories as multifaceted characters not as one-sided stereotypes and not waiting for someone else to give them the representation that we so badly need. So whether it's web series, whether it's one woman shows, like for example, if you look back at um, Silkwood Rising's solo series that they had several years ago, there are so many women of color, not just South Asian women, but um, Asian women um, as well doing these amazing one woman shows. So I go back to that because that's the only place that I feel I have agency as a working actor is over the stories that I write and create and tell for myself. And so that's the mentorship that I want to offer to young people coming after me to say, you know, it's totally fine to be a working actor. It's absolutely great. That, that's what I set out to do, honestly. I set out to be like, I'm going to be a TV and commercial actor. That's my dream. And it still is in, a, in part, but when I have realized the limitations of casting, I have found that I find, I find more agency in creating my own work. And I want to empower and validate people to tell their stories, especially when those subjects are not subjects we usually talk about. Mm. And I know it's kind of hard to go forward into the future as you're still working with Holloway, but what other ambitions would you like to take on? In the I want to write more. Um, do you mean 
within the creative sphere or just outside of creative and outside well i i kind of go back to the skills that i have that i want to use in a, perhaps a wider capacity i want to i want to write more because i want to write more about my family and write more stories i want to continue using languages as i do um as much as i can in the writing so you know using my french and using hindi and and the other languages that i kind of know i'd like to use them in my work um i'd like to be as you said a mentor to younger people but i think um my passions have always been in the creative sphere so whether it's using linguistics or whether it's using acting dancing writing it's always going to be about creating something new or or maybe collaborating with people to create something new does that answer your question yes absolutely and i would say the next question i'm thinking of right now is if you had to talk to your 10-year-old or your your 20-year-old self what would you say to that 20-year-old self when you're studying abroad don't be so irresponsible <laughs> where were you studying abroad wait, that wasn't wait wait <laughs> Wait, was I supposed to not mention that part? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Is there something we don't know? <laughs> <laughs> My 20-year-old self. Okay, so looking back at 20, at 20 years old, I was a junior in college. I had no intention of pursuing acting as a career. So, and, and I, I hadn't dealt with the the triggers that I have in my personal life. It, it, it was coming three years later and it took me basically the, all of my 20s from 23 on to sort of address trauma. So if I was to speak to my 20 year old self, I would say continue that confidence, but also learn to be empathetic towards individuals, learn to be patient in your learning because I've never really been a patient person in terms of like, why is this taking so long? I want to be a master already. I want to be perfect. I want to be great. But in fact, I'm learning the journey is the journey of learning is more exciting and rewarding than the, the finishing stage because you're always going to be learning. That's what I tell my 20 year old self. Damn. I love it. I'm because like for me, like when I look back at being 20 years old, which is like 16 years ago <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself like everything had to be reached to a deadline I had to get to a destination right and when you talk about journey and the journey of learning the journey that we're on is something to be very appreciative of I mean the lessons the people we've come across the resistance we've had to face and the resistance or I would say overcoming and also learning how to navigate those resistances in our lives too and and I'm glad that you have done such beautiful work, especially with Hollow Wave, which I would recommend to anyone to see it. Uh, if it comes into your city, uh, mark it down. So with that said, what um, plug would you like to make as far as your, where can we follow you on social media? Um, how can we you know, follow up on upcoming events that you're working on? Okay, sure. Um, thank you also for that wonderful recommendation. I really appreciate it. You can follow me on, you can follow Hollow Wave rather on Facebook at Hollow Wave One, or you can just search Hollow Wave and you will find my Facebook page. 
on Instagram, I am at hollow wave the play. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, although unfortunately I'm not the most active person slash don't have that much feedback yet, but it's at but underscore anu, B-H-A-T-T underscore A-N-U, or check out my website at anubhat.com, and I have more information about Hollow Wave there. Yeah, and I know that uh, you had just sent me the bio, so I'll be glad to uh, put that in uh, in the post uh, once a podcast episode is uh, released. So I'm looking forward to what you're doing uh, next, and keep up the great work. It's been such a joy watching your journey and and just bringing this important conversation that is often so taboo and so uh, hidden in all of our communities and to bring it out to the surface and to open up space so that folks can share and to feel affirmations from it is very powerful. And I think that uh, having these dialogue especially in theater spaces is critical and also very inspiring too so i'm very inspired by what you're doing with that play but also what you're doing to disrupt what's going on with the current uh, uh mainstream me- uh, of how poc are represented in mainstream media so we're hoping to see uh more representation but but very important stories that will come out that will inspire all of our uh, community members in different populations. So yeah, keep up the great work. I'm so glad that you are on today and I look forward to uh, watching what you're doing next. Thank you so much, Randy. It's been a real pleasure to be on. And just quick uh, shout out to everybody that I'm gonna be trying to tour Hollow Wave across the country. So. If you have a venue and you would like to invite me, please let's get in touch. Um, you've got that those websites and the contact info um, there. And also, I wanted to say, you know, it's scary to to disrupt. It's scary to talk about taboo stuff, but that shouldn't stop us from talking about it. Because when right. we talk about it, we create empathy, and with empathy, we create a better quality of life for everybody. So. Let's keep going. And you create a stronger community from that as well. You create a community that uh, people feel less scared of. So amen to that and keep it up. But yeah, thank you so much, Anu, for your time. And and keep us uh, keep up the great work. And uh, we'll talk again soon. And I hope you enjoy the weather in San Diego. What's the weather like right now? Oh, um, it's like a it's like a cool eighty degrees. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, breeze, clear yeah. blue sky, um, green everywhere. Yeah, mm. it's, I'm looking know. out the window right now as we speak, and it is nothing like that. It is overcast. It is 50 degrees. Oh for a no! High. I thought you were gonna have. Do you do you guys have the fall colors yet? It's Dollar. showing. It is starting to show this past two weeks. So. Okay. It's, it's it's nice. I mean, I'm not saying that fall is terrible because I do like fall, but I'm not quite there in the whole 50 degree weather change when about a month ago it was like 80 degrees and I think we had like 90 degree like about two weeks ago. So yeah, it's quite an adjustment as you uh, already know. So yeah, I'm very jealous of you, especially when <laughs> December, January, February, March, April, 
kind of intimate comes yeah, exactly about so yeah but anyways thank you so much and have a great rest of your day and on your and great luck on your journey thank you so much thanks randy take care have a good one bye bye, -bye.